Good morning. Welcome to another edition of the Canalyst Conversation. We are here today with Omar Figueroa. Um, uh, he is a graduate of Stanford Law School, has been practicing for 20 some odd years, um, did a stint at Yale and Wharton. I guess you want to make sure you get all the big names thrown in there. Um, he is also a director of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Uh, he works with the Cannabis Tourism International and the Ganjir Circle, which I'm hoping he will explain those organizations and what they do in detail. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am most excellent. How are you? I'm good. Good. Always good. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, the National Cannabis Industry and what they're focused on these days. It's, uh, the, it's the largest trade association in the United States, and right now it's focused on federal legalization and changing the federal landscape. Uh, they're lobbying for the small cannabis businesses across the U.S. Uh, to try to come up with workable federal regulations and also to uh, repeal federal cannabis prohibition, which is the number one step, is descheduling cannabis so that it's no longer Schedule 1. And once that happens, there's going to be all sorts of cascading effects. But the most important thing, I think, initially is uh, as a trade association for licensed cannabis businesses across the United States uh, to work together, you know, for their mutual benefit. And, and obviously, we've been hearing about, you know, the, uh, the Senate proposals and, and we get really close and then it never goes anywhere. You know, are, are we going to see the Banking Act before we see the Federal Act? What, what's your sense of where things are going to go and the timing, if any? Yeah, my, my all, sense, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very variable because, uh, you know, the information is always changing. And at this particular juncture, I think we will see safe banking before we see uh, comprehensive federal uh, reform. And it just looks like the banking lobbyists are indefatigable, indefatigable and well-funded and have not given up. So it uh, looks like safe banking may uh, make it through. And once that happens, I think there's going to be beneficial effects in uh, all of the security concerns about having to deal with a large amount of cash are going to be alleviated by the ability to bank. It's going to uh, streamline payroll and tax paying. A lot of other um, effects will be the ability to get loans and financial services. So if safe banking passes, that will have like quite a number of cascading effects. It's going to make it easier for bankers to start thinking about cannabis and you'll see all sorts of innovative financial products that are cannabis related. Um, and it will also be windy sales for broader reform efforts. So I do hope uh, safe banking makes it through at this point um, with the senator saying that they're going to look at cannabis and introduce a bill sometime in August near the end of the congressional term, to me, does not uh, bode well, because if it's going to be introduced near the end of the congressional term, it's going to be difficult to just get it right through at the last moment if there's concerted um, you know, opposition or lack of support, because they're going to need 60 votes to get it through the Senate. And I don't see that happening unless there's a significant change. How can those significant changes happen in, you know, right before the um, end of the congressional Session. Yeah, they're going to throw it in at the end and say, so this way they can say they tried. Right, that's right. Yeah. That could be, I, I agree with that analysis. And you talk to a lot of very intelligent people on this podcast. So 
I think your sense is aggregated from many intelligent people and uh, yeah, and I mean, what we hear the biggest challenge is, I mean, the reason why the, the federal level is so important, or at least the declassification, is because of the tax implications. Um, you know, so that you know, folks can write off cost of sale and just make it, you know, a reasonable margin. Yeah. Um, speaking of reasonable, let's talk about California first, right? So, you know, in the last six months, we've been hearing all kinds of grumblings about how difficult an environment California is at this point, that the tax rates are onerous, the, you know, sin taxes, all those types of things. So what's going on in California right now? Well, in California, there's a very struggling cannabis industry, and it's also the unregulated market that is struggling. So the entire cannabis sector uh, is under severe stress. I think it's going to be characterized in the future as an extinction event. I even hear of many old time growers in Humboldt County who are transitioning uh, from what used to be the cannabis market and now they're just going to go back to becoming carpenters or electricians or doing other types of you know, uh, manual labor that are much more lucrative than cannabis these days. Uh, it's it's just turned turning out that, you know, the market in California is uh, struggling at both levels. At the regulated level, the, the 280E, but state on top of local taxes, and we have two types of state taxes, the cultivation tax and the excise tax. And on top of that, the local jurisdictions added their own little local tax for the privilege of operating at the local level. And so the California system is really like a case study in how taxes uh, prop up an unregulated market. And the how, industry, right? Yeah, basically high taxation, you know, creates an uncompetitive marketplace where consumers, you know, really have no incentive other than laboratory testing to go to the regulated market because it's just as expensive as it was in the old, uh, you know, so-called black market days uh, to buy cannabis. I can't believe that the price of cannabis is still roughly $50 an eight, which is the price that what it was before uh, Proposition 64 passed in November uh, 2016. So that to me speaks of like, um, how many regulators saw cannabis as basically a piggy bank that they could, uh, you know, continuously uh, take the eggs from the golden goose and not deplete it. And it seems like now they're depleting the golden goose. The golden goose is laying and laying fewer golden eggs uh, because it's not being put in a healthy environment. Um, a lot of this was with uh, 280E reform. That's not the entire solution. I think at the state level, um, we have to see an expansion of retail, also direct to consumer sales from farmers to consumers at farmers markets. I think that's a huge thing because once the consumers uh, can get it without too many intermediaries, there's always going to be intermediaries. The cannabis needs to be transported to the farmers market by licensed distributors and it needs to go through licensed testing laboratories. So all of that would not change under the uh, legislative proposals in California. but we could end up seeing uh, direct-to-consumer sales opening up in California, which I think would be a lifeline to the craft cultivators who grow the ultra-premium cannabis that people across the world deserve access to. Yeah, but the irony is the direct-to-consumer wouldn't be direct-to-consumer from the farmer to transportation back to the farmer to then to the consumer. 
right? So that's it's not right. even direct to consumer, and you know, it's just ridiculous. Yes, and and it's really like a concession to the this mandatory distribution system that was put in. You know, before back in uh, the collective and cooperative days, before we had this highly regulated system, it truly was direct to consumer. Uh, I mean, it was pretty unregulated. So there were there was a lot of uh, lack of testing and a lot of like really noxious pesticides uh, were used on cannabis and nobody knew any better. So well, I would say that- Direct to your local consumer. Uh, you got distributor, right? That's right. <laughs> and um, there was like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us, I mean, does this, you know, suggest that the only way to survive this is going to be through big cannabis? And will we just, you know, will this kill the small market or, or will the craft market survive? I think the ultra premium craft market will survive looking at how um, ultra premium cannabis is being defined. You know, for example, uh, the Ganjie program, of which I'm a member of the founding circle, um, we really like educate people about the value of terpenes and, you know, sun-grown cannabis and the full expression of the, of the plant. You can't just judge quality based on potency alone. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to do that for alcohol, for wine, you'd be uh, choosing fortified wine and the, the most potent wine. You know, it's not about it. It's, the experience is not about uh, maximizing THC intake. It's about really, um, you know, yeah, otherwise we'd all be drinking Everclear, right? That's right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And so like so much of the experience is, is you know, sensory and uh, it's terpene based and that's becoming to be more widely accepted. And it turns out that plants that are grown in the sun and exposed to the full range of environmental conditions uh, tend to have much richer terpene profiles, you know, because they're not like these hot house flowers that, you know, they're can't really take. Yeah. yeah. So let, let's back up a little bit. How did you get, you know, you've been a, a lawyer for a while. So how did you get into the cannabis space as a lawyer? When I was in law school, I went to Stanford Law School and, you know, we had like the, um, you know, most prominent legal minds come to talk to us, like Supreme Court justices, Antonin Scalia and, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor and all of these like famous corporate lawyers. And then one day, an old hippie lawyer with long white hair and a ponytail named Tony Sarah came to campus. And his speech was for me the most inspiring speech. Like he said, there's two types of lawyers in the world. There's like lawyers who fight about money and lawyers who fight for freedom. Which type of lawyer do you wanna be? And so at that point, you know, I was like young, idealistic, had just graduated from college, had been a philosophy major at Yale, believed in like, you know, the platonic ideals of like, you know, the, the highest form of human seeks the truth. And then after that, the, the next highest seeks fame. And then after that, the lowest form of human just, just seek wealth, right? And so I was like thinking like, I wanted to aspire to something more than mere wealth uh, at that point. And so Tony Sarah said, there's two types of lawyers in the world. I was like, man, I, I, I want to be a freedom lawyer. And so, um, you know, during law school, I worked at the federal public defender. Um, and my reason was really like, I wanted to represent human beings. I didn't want to be representing these corporations that have no soul that are accorded personhood by the legal system, but I wanted to represent human beings with souls. 
And so for a large part of my career, a couple decades, I uh, was a freedom defense lawyer specializing in cannabis cases. And the reason I focused on cannabis is because it was the best way to get the best cannabis in Northern California. The growers would always save the very best for themselves. That was known as the head stash and their lawyer. And so I, I learned it was access to head stash, basically. Um, and that's why I focus on... It's very noble of you. <laughs> well, it was kind of like selfish, but it was more like pursue your passions. And so, you know, I have undiminished enthusiasm for cannabis and for the practice of law. And I, uh, you know, thank my, me pursuing my passions. And so that's taken me to many interesting places. Like, I, you know, I've gotten to speak at, say, Spanibus in Barcelona or, you know, to be involved in this Ganjie project. And I got to meet a lot of like the, the people I looked up to in the cannabis uh, world, like, you know, Master Cultivator Mel Frank or Master Hashashin uh, Frenchy Cannoli, or, you know, I got to hang out with, um, you know, people that are very interesting, at least to me. Um, and so- and, and then, um, As a result of all these travels, you're now involved with the uh, Cannabis Tourism International. Tell us about that. Yes, so I'm a, a director of the Cannabis Travel Association International, which is uh, the first trade association relating to cannabis travel. Um, we started as a California-based organization, but there's been so much interest that we've expanded internationally. And basically, the members are looking at cannabis tourism. Like the, the um, basically, the travel industry did a lot of uh, research during COVID because. They're trying to figure out, you know, what to do next once people start traveling again. And they realize that what, you know, some of the activities that people want to do, like one of the main activities is use cannabis on vacation. Right. Makes sense. People are on vacation, you know, they, they don't have the responsibilities of everyday life and they want to experiment with cannabis. So a lot of travel uh, providers are now thinking, how do they incorporate cannabis? Or maybe as a half step, how do they incorporate CBD into the travel experience because they know that a lot of uh, travelers are expecting, you know, are open to uh, these cannabis experiences. At the same time, people who do cannabis travel, they're thinking like cannabis is an intensifier and you can really provide incredible experiences. For example, some of these, uh, you know, curated dining events, I've been to like, you know, that pair cannabis with fine wine and fine dining. And because cannabis does sharpen your appreciation for, gustatory experiences it's amazing you know like you can really have like um uh increased enhancement of your meal and of the wine that accompanies your meal uh when paired with uh, the right strains of cannabis of course if people are taking couch lock strains that are going to knock them out the event is just going to be like a catastrophe but if people are taking something that kind of like intensifies their appreciation you know, cannabis is not just about cannabis. Cannabis, um, the future of cannabis travel is going to be where cannabis is kind of like an adjunct to the main experience. You're going to see cannabis yoga conferences and, you know, uh, cannabis writing workshops and cannabis, you know, art and comedy uh, conferences and all sorts of events. Um, I can't wait to see a chocolate, cannabis and coffee and comedy festival. We, we also, you know, we're starting to see more and more states come online and there's this expansion. Um, and I know that you guys are focused on New York. What's going on in New York? 
Yes, my law firm opened an office in Brooklyn, New York, and we have an attorney, Andrew Kingsdale, who is a member of the cannabis law section, the head of the CBD and hemp uh, part of the uh, New York State Bar Association. And uh, basically, we're uh, writing about New York actively and uh, providing legal services now. Uh, we have clients are interested in obtaining you know, some of these licenses that are coming out. And um, I think it's going to be very interesting because we have a lot of experience with all of these applications and we've been through it before. And so um, we can bring in all our old school experience that, you know, we have from the cannabis industry, best practices into uh, the New York market where many of the lawyers, everybody, you know, every law firm in the United States, I think is, establishing a cannabis practice group and so many of them don't really have any experience or any credibility in the cannabis world and so you know we guys we were getting calls from people saying you know can you refer us to lawyers in new york and we have a few colleagues from the international cannabis bar association of which i'm a founding member um but eventually we just decided you know we can service uh our clients are directly and uh, combine like a lot of the experience from California, take it to New York. Uh, and also many for California clients are interested in New York and many for uh, New York clients are also interested in California uh, because many of the MSOs have yet to crack the California code, you know, but we are very well positioned to do that because we've been in California for, and we have, uh, you know, just kind of level insight that you can only get from like watching the whole industry grow up over time. And, and then um, with the, the federalization, will that allow the multi-state operators to sell interstate or across lines? Uh, it could. I mean, if cannabis were descheduled, I think we would see immediate interstate activity and uh, you would see California cannabis in New York mm -hmm. and, you know, the finest uh, cannabis boutiques in Manhattan w would be like extolling the virtues of sun-grown cannabis and getting into the Appalachians of origin, which is something that we're working on and we're very excited about, which are the world's first Appalachians of origin, uh, which are part of California law, are soon going to be established. There's been a regulations uh, rulemaking, regulatory rulemaking process that is now completed and we have uh, finalized regulations in California for petitions to establish a new appellation of origin and um, you know these are terroir based appellations where the product will end up being an expression of the place such that you can have the same exact cannabis genetics with the same exact techniques grown somewhere else and it's not going to be the product. Well, and that's like the varietals with wine right so kind of except <laughs> with yes except that they don't really have those terroir based requirements that international appellations of origin have yeah the, the so, irony was i was in barcelona and i was at a club and the guy's like i have really good california stuff so like i can't get it in connecticut but i can get it in spain so <laughs> yeah i agree when i was in barcelona california cannabis like was considered like some of the best in the world and i know there's that incredible demand for it so when uh the Controlled substances that get healed and international and interstate commerce become a reality, there's going to be a tremendous demand. And all this cannabis that right now is kind of flooded the market in California, it's just kind of stuck there. If it could get outside of the California legally and internationally legally 
it would be an incredible boon to the California economy and to all of these like legacy growers and farmers who've been keeping the genetics alive and putting their freedom at risk to perpetuate cannabis culture during the height of the drug war. I think they need to benefit too. Like it shouldn't be that MSOs just come in and reap the fruits of their labor and leave them behind. That's been their MO many times, not all, but you know. And then going back to New York, um, based on what you're seeing, are they learning from the experiences from other states or are they making the same mistakes? No, they look at California as a as a warning sign, basically. Okay, and it's like how not to do it is what California has become. It's almost like a running joke in other states. You know, California is an example of uh, failure and they don't want to repeat that. Um, and you could see that with New York, for example, like a lot of the local jurisdictions were far more open about allowing consumption lounges and storefront dispensaries uh, than California has been. So, you know, now I think, you know, once they allow adult use retailers across the state of New York, very quickly, there's going to be a lot more green zones than in California. You know, and one of the things that we're seeing in New York, and, and this speaks a little bit to what will happen um, on the federal level, is just because it's been passed doesn't mean that it is operational, right? It takes years to work out the details. Um, can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, like even the quality of the product is going to be, um, you know, not the best that it could be right up, right away because a lot of these like hemp uh, conditional cultivators, you know, they're not used to growing cannabis. They're like hemp growers, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, and so there's going to be a learning curve that will be reflected in the initial quality. And so as time goes on, the quality will be refined. But I think, um, you know, you raise a really good point, which is like there's a uh, time to get up to speed. And in terms of quality, in terms of work, you know, working out all the kinks, figuring out regulatory compliance, um, having standard operating procedures that are very efficient and still compliant that takes time to develop, you know, none of that comes um, right off out of the bat. And uh, operators need to expect that they have to constantly adapt and learn. For me, that's what makes this practice of law so exciting is that it's constantly changing. And, you know, if you're a skier, you like fresh powder, right? You don't want to be like on covering that you can't really, um, you know, do carve your own way. And so with cannabis law, a lot of it is questions of first impression. They've never been appealed or litigated. And so it really is legal fresh powder. Um, and that's what makes it very exciting. And, and New York has been uh, focusing on the restorative justices licenses initially. Um, is that working? Will that work? I think it, it will work better than it has in other states because the focus really seems to be um, on making it work and there's going to be a, a tremendous level of support from New York state government where they're basically going to be uh, renting out the locations uh, and giving it, you know, leasing it to the applicants, but um, it's not going to be the predatory uh, practices, the green premium that you see where landlords are basically upcharging everything just because it's marijuana. And so I think um, there is a good chance that the New York system will be like one of the best in the country. And uh, that it's going to be a challenge uh, for California for us to 
you know, improve our dysfunctional system now that we have better examples out there of things that actually do work. Um, I think that will be an impetus for California to improve. Yeah, I actually was listening to a lawyer the other day who was talking about trying to get something licensed in L.A. And like just the hoops and changes and all that was just like, you know, she was earning every dollar <laughs> trying to get those licenses. And you know, it was crazy. Um, so what other areas beyond New York are you looking at? Um, we're looking internationally because we do a lot of intellectual property law. And so much of that IP law, you know, there's a lot of infringement that happens internationally. So you have to protect your trademarks, for example, by registering them in infringing countries like, say, China, for example. Um, and so, you know, we're starting to look at um, international law and that. And then, you know, we write books. So like this is like my California book. And once the adult use regs get finalized, we're going to be able, we're going to be that's in a, a position to update. Huh? That's a big book. Oh, man. so it's really not that big okay. to the California book, which is a beast. Look at that. California okay, has yeah. hundred pages of um, laws and regulations. And um, I basically wrote the book because nobody else was doing a good job. Like there's a, a company called LexisNexis that are legal publishers, but may, you know, their book was oftentimes like not up to date um, with the latest. And so basically I created my own tool and then started selling it to everybody. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about the, the challenges in California. What are some of the other challenges you've seen in the industry, obviously besides, you know, federal legalization? Oh, um, lack of retail access, lack of direct to consumer access. And, you know, these are things that people are working on. If uh, we do see um, direct to consumer access where farmers can get temporary retailer permits for up to eight cannabis events, uh, then you'll probably see like a proliferation of cannabis events across the state. And by cannabis event, I mean like a place that's state licensed or it's an event that's state licensed up to four days long. Uh, where adults 21 and over can buy and consume cannabis. And um, so you're a see Lollapalooza of cannabis kind of thing? Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, that could also combine, it doesn't necessarily have to be concerts, although that's usually like the first, you know, form that it takes. Like the Emerald Cup is usually like musical acts and cannabis vending and cannabis consumption. Uh, but I think eventually you'll see like can cannabis comedy festivals. Uh, food truck festivals. I think there's tremendous potential for, you know, foodie type events because cannabis really pairs well with food. And, and there's um, munchies. So, yeah, sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and and um, there may end up being like new, you know, events like Coachella, you know, which has now become kind of part of modern culture. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like a new event 20 years ago. It wasn't, you know, what it is now. And so yeah, I think there's going to be, right? yeah. And so we're going to see cannabis events that will end up becoming mainstream, you know, like the Emerald Cup, for example, moved from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles, at least the awards part of it did. And so I think there's uh, still a demand up here in Northern California for an event that will be local for locals to celebrate local cannabis culture without people having to travel down to Los Angeles. And so that's an example of demand that's still unfilled for- and, and do you think like the cannabis cups are more sort of industry specific for like the insiders or, or are they seeing the general public attending? 
Um, depends on the area, like in, the, you know, like Santa Rosa, you, you see a lot of like, um, kind of curious first timers and, you know, general public attending for sure. Like, you know, people from Walnut Creek and from, uh, you know, San Francisco high society who probably wouldn't, you know, go to an event where they, they could be recognized. Uh, you know, they travel to the Emerald cup so they can participate in cannabis culture. Uh, so people from all over, uh, will do that. And I think, you know, um, initially the, I went to the Admiral Cup back when it was up in home county in the material, you know, in a tent smoking with a bunch of hippies. And so, you know, that, that's when it was really like a B2B event and people were really like making deals in the parking lot. But I think nowadays it's more like a consumer facing event. And, you know, th there's a lot of uh, cachet for those who win the Admiral Cup. Awards. If you're a grower and your strain wins the Emerald Cup, then you know that, that's a big accolade, and it helps you sell your product everywhere you put offer it. And you know, there's been a lot of talk about sort of transitioning to brands, and like there's you know a big push for brands. Are you seeing this? Oh Is yes, that working. Uh, it seems to be working. You know, it, it building a brand takes time and creating that credibility, but uh, we're doing a lot of intellectual property trademark registration work because California now registers cannabis trademarks, um, asked us the state of New York at the state level. And then there's also federal trademarks. Uh, you can't trademark cannabis yet because it's federally illegal, but you can't trademark hemp. And so many of my clients are trademarking using the intent to use application process. Um, hemp products so that nobody will register any conflicting marks before cannabis gets legalized. And so and, and you've been yeah. talking a lot about um, adult use. Do, do you do anything in the medical side? Of course. I mean, I started defending medical cannabis patients and that was really the crux of my practice for many years. So I've had um, many conversations with medical cannabis doctors about medical cannabis conditions and what is the amount that is uh, reasonable, reasonably related to my patient's medical needs, because that, that was usually the medical defense. And so I have a deep understanding of medical cannabis, but as like a lot of the work that's getting done legal now as a, a business lawyer, um, it's not limited to medical. Um, I do have clients who whose focus is on medical cannabis because, you know, for them, it's a passion and we are honored to represent clients like that. But I would say the majority of people getting into the, the cannabis business and needing legal help um, are not medical, medical only. They're looking at a broader market. Omar, we very much appreciate your time today. If people want to learn what you're doing, where can they find you? On our website, www.omarfigueroa.com. Or you can just Google Omar Cannabis Lawyer. I'm the only one. Omar, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. We look for exciting things from you and keep up the good fight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you.